Let's pray together. Father, we pray for this time. Truly, you are the solid rock, and we stand nowhere else in safety. Father, let us stand in you. Let us worship in you. Let us drink from this well of living water this morning. Would you be present as we contemplate your encounter with this dear woman? Would you let us see ourselves in her circumstances, in her position? And Lord, let us come to you because you have come to us. Let us walk towards you and your promises because you have walked towards us. Father, we pray you would illuminate the reading and the preaching of your word to the benefit of all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Laura Sessions Step is a journalist for the Washington Post. She won the Pulitzer Prize for Journalism. She turned her sharp eye on the practice of hooking up in our culture in 2008 with a book called Unhooked, How Young Women Pursue Sex, Delay Love, and Lose at Both. She says, hooking up offers girls the opportunity to exert their independence, explore their sexual desires and capabilities, and try to keep their emotional lives under control. But experts in the field of adolescence say hooking up can also act as an obstacle to real intimacy, which they call the hallmark of a satisfying adult life. They see potential for long-term dangers to young women and young men, physical, emotional, and practical, if hooking up becomes the, to def, comes to define the way of being. In her last chapter, she talks about a girl that she calls Alicia, who was a student at Duke University, and she's looking back on her experiences and the choices that she made and reflecting upon the way that that changed her life, the way that it taught her to think about relationships. She went to Duke and lost her virginity in college and then began to hook up with as many men as she could possibly do. She saw it as something of a game, and it was entertaining to her as she sort of had conquest, as she seduced these men, and she quickly convinced herself that she could decide not to get hurt. Sessions, Session writes, The most difficult, dissonant moment may come when a girl understands that by trying to take control, she has simply done to herself what she meant to prevent boys from doing to her. And Alicia writes in this incredibly perceptive uh, paragraph, she concurs and says, you try so hard to stay free and unattached and indifferent, but you attach yourself all the while. And then suddenly, over, suddenly, it's over. And the emotions of every time in that relationship when you should have stood up for yourself or denied him something all surfaces. Every time you weren't indifferent pisses you off. And instead of being sad that you were hurt by the loss of someone, you were angry that you let that person hurt you. This not only glosses over the deep hurt and emotional wounds, but you also experience it both as a relationship and a hurtful battle with your attachment needs. Since it ends badly, you end up hating both your needs and relationships in general. So what happened to Alicia, what happens to these women in the book is that they start to question their self-worth altogether, if they're worth being loved, if anyone will love them for their true self. They feel distant from their true selves and unconnected from their own hearts. Another girl puts it, I wasn't getting what I needed and couldn't speak up for myself because I was afraid of being rejected, 
even by someone I didn't even like or someone who was hurting me. In this passage this morning, Jesus is encountering, in fact, this woman is encountering Jesus, and she's in this sort of situation. She's given herself over and over to a variety of men and now finds herself disillusioned and despondent and sorrowful and also ostracized. She's been hurt deeply by her own choices as well as by these men who have taken advantage of her. And we're going to look at how does Jesus deal with this sort of situation? How does he deal with this hurting woman? We're going to look at the encounter itself, and we're going to look at the image of living water. Why does he choose water as the image to convey spiritual truth? And then the cleansing, the transformation that takes place. So encounter, image, and then the cleansing. So first of all, what's going on in this encounter? As we read that rather long passage, we as modern Americans don't get a lot of the connections that the first century readers would get. It seems fairly run-of-the-mill at first, but it says he had to go through Samaria. But this is not really true in a a geographical sense. Jews went around Samaria between those two uh, destinations all the time. It was, it was a little bit longer, but they, the cultural custom is that you had to go not through, but around, because they hated the Samaritans. They wouldn't find themselves dead in Samaria. That's why Jesus chose the Samaritan to be the exemplar, the hero of the Good Samaritan story. But Jesus says he had to go through Samaria. And notice he's alone. And why? John says parenthetically, because All 12 of the disciples have gone to get food. Does it really take all 12? No, Jesus wanted to be alone because he was on a journey, not simply to Galilee, but he was on a journey to this woman and to this woman's heart. Now, notice three things about her. I mentioned earlier that she's a Samaritan. She's a religious half-breed. She's hated by the Jews, and a Jew would no more talk to her than spit on her, would rather spit on her than talk to her. She's racially and religiously impure. Secondly, she's a woman. You rarely found a Jewish man speaking to a woman in public in the first century, not even his wife. And there was an approved prayer, God, I thank you that I'm not a woman. So for a man, a rabbi, teacher, like Jesus, to hold a private conversation with the woman at the well is utterly subversive and is overturning the theological conventional wisdom of the day. Thirdly, she's an outcast. Notice it said that she went to the well at noon. It's the sixth hour of the day. No one went to the well at noon because it's hot. In our day, in our culture, when something grabs our attention, grabs the American consciousness, we talk about it as a water cooler event, water cooler conversation. But in the first century, it was well conversation. This is where you went to share gossip to be, uh, and to learn gossip and to basically reconnect with your friends. It was the place where women had their friendships. But no one goes with her. She goes at noon to avoid that gossip because she is the subject of it. (laughs) She doesn't want to see these women because they've ostracized her. She's impure. (laughs) Just as she is to Jewish men, the women have left her. She's an outcast. And Jesus is inviting us to identify with this outcast. He's asking, can you see yourself 
in this woman's circumstances? Can you see yourself as morally impure? The people who see Jesus, the people who get his message, the people for whom the gospel changes everything, are the ones who can see themselves in these circumstances. The ones who can see themselves as an outcast, just like this woman. It's those that don't come with religious credentials, but those who come with nothing. When our jobs are going well, when our kids are healthy and thriving, when we're making A's at school, we rarely ask the big and most important questions of life. Who am I? Who is God? Can I approach God? Can I be forgiven? But if you're like this woman, when you've been slighted, when people think of you one-dimensionally because of a mistake you've made in your past, when you've been ostracized, when you've been marginalized, when you have no religious credentials to stand on, then you're ready to receive Jesus. Then you can hear his voice. Then you begin to ask those big questions. Who am I? Where is God? What is he doing in the world? And how do I connect with him? Notice how Jesus comes to this woman. He sits down with this vulnerable, marginalized woman and speaks to her tenderly and personally. May I have a drink? God is asking this woman for help. (laughs) Can you give me something to drink? This sinner. Now, whether you bought into the Christian story or not, this should utterly blow your mind. Because here is God being tender with his creation. Here is God approaching a sinner and saying, would you give me a drink? It's utterly unique. All other religions say, come with your credentials in hand. Come with your bona fides. Come with what you've done. And then maybe I'll let you in. Maybe I'll receive you. Here John is saying that God himself sits down with an unqualified, uncredentialed, moral outcast and has a tender conversation with her. She says, but you don't have a bucket. And what she's saying here is, you're not from around here, are you? (laughs) You must be in from out of town because you don't know who I am. Not only is Jesus saying, would you help me get water? Because he doesn't have a bucket, he's saying, can I drink out of your bucket? Utterly unheard of for a Jew to ask a Samaritan to drink out of their bucket. You're not from around here. You don't know who I am. And Jesus says, no, (laughs) you don't know who I am. Because if you knew who I am, then you would ask me for a drink. You would ask me to give you living water. You don't know who I am. That's the encounter. Here's the image, that I am living water. If you knew who I am, you would ask me for a drink. Why does he use this image? Let me give you a couple of suggestions. One is that Jesus loves us and he loves our world. Now that may seem a bit of an aside, but notice how Jesus speaks to everyone. To Nicodemus in chapter 3, an aging elderly gentleman, he says, he announces the new birth. To a crowd of hungry people, he says, I am the bread of life. To a blind man, he says, I'm the light of the world. And to a thirsty woman, he says, I am living water. You see, God has created the world. Jesus has made the world, and he loves the world, and he uses things in the world, just like we will do in a minute, to communicate grace 
to you. You don't have to leave your world in order to know and follow me. I come to you. I pursue you in your world, in your profession, in your situatedness, in your circumstances. That's the uniqueness of the Bible, the uniqueness of Christianity. If you don't believe it, then keep questioning. Keep questing after the truth. But this is unique. This is something you won't find elsewhere. Secondly, why does he use the image of living waters? But is because Jesus is saying everyone is thirsty. It's not just this woman, but everyone is thirsty. C.S. Lewis says that each of us have what he calls a nostalgia, a longing to be reunited in something, to something in life that we feel cut off from, something in the universe that we feel that we can no longer connect to. It's some ache. It's some homesickness, something that we've lost. And we all have this thirst to try and find that thing again. And we're, we're seeking and moving about our worlds, connecting with all of these different things, trying to fill that thirst, trying to assuage that thirst. And Jesus uses the imagery of thirsting, and he says that we're all seeking to quench a thirst. And ultimately, this thirst is a spiritual thirsting. It's a spiritual hunger, spiritual questing. Now, those of us who use sex in order to fill this thirst, in order to slake this thirst, we end up feeling In order to feel loved and valued, we end up feeling used, and we feel cheapened, just like the stories of the girls in that book. Maybe we use success to try and assuage our thirst, and we become enslaved to job performance, to criticism. We become competitive at work because if we don't step on someone else, they're going to step on me. Maybe it's our children. We promote ourselves in order to feel better about ourselves through the performance and the behavior of our children, and so we lay upon them colossal demands that they will ultimately fail, and we become embarrassed by missteps and misbehavior. Maybe we seek to slake our thirst with our appearance, and so we're always fearful of meeting someone who dresses better, looks better, gets more attention. We never know if we really belong to our group. We never know if we really have a true friendship or if this person is just using me because of how I make them feel. Clements, who is the the lead character in Albert Camus' The Fall, says this as he reflects on life and how he journeys through life. He says, Because I longed for eternal life, I went to bed with harlots and drank for nights on end. I slept in bliss but awoke with the bitter taste of my mortal state. Jesus is saying, everyone is thirsty. Everyone is like Clements. Maybe it's not alcohol. Maybe it's not a harlot. But you're seeking something that you can sink your teeth in, that you can grasp to say, this is me. This is my name. This is my identity. This is my meaning. But Jesus says not only that everyone is thirsty, but he has the audacity to claim that I am the only one who can truly fill that thirst, meet that thirst. I have something that your soul needs just like your body needs water. In fact, if you go to any other source, your thirst will not be met, will not be assuaged. It will deepen. It's like drinking salt water. And as he does this, he's picking up something that's deeply embedded in the Old Testament scriptures. Jeremiah 2.13, God says, For my people have committed two evils. 
They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hoed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can't hold water. A broken cistern in the Middle East is useless. It's totally useless. You throw it out because the thing that you need in an arid desert culture is water. You need to have a source of water, and you need to have a way that you can contain that water and save it when the rains leave. And so a broken cistern is something that is hopeless. It's totally, totally useless. Now this, interestingly enough, I hope you'll see the connection or that I can share it with you. This is why he tells her to go and call your husband. It's not to mock her. It's not to point out her immorality. She was certainly well aware of that. She'd been ostracized and punished for her sin her whole life. He doesn't say, go call your husband so that she will be aware that she is a sinner. But in order to get her to see that these men are broken cisterns, in order to to get her to see that going from relationship to relationship from man to man, seeking happiness, seeking fulfillment. Maybe it's the next one that they are all broken cisterns, and she's drinking salt water, not living water. That's what she's trying to, he's trying to get her to see. Now, of course, she's been subjugated and marginalized and abused by these women. I mean, by these men, but no doubt she's also taken advantage of it. Jesus is showing her extraordinary compassion. Because he doesn't allow her outward sinfulness. He doesn't allow her promiscuity and immorality to be a block. It doesn't scare him off, but he uses it in order to show her her true need. Bob Newhart has this great sketch, at least I think it's funny, and he plays a therapist, and he's sitting in his office, and a woman comes in, and she says, well, I come to see you, I have a problem, so forth. And he says, okay, well, here's how we do things here. I, you pay me $5, and I'll give you five minutes some time. She thinks, oh, okay, well, so it's a dollar a minute. He says, no, 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 five minutes total, because we're not going past five minutes. Whatever your problem is, we'll be done within five minutes. And so she goes on to explain how uh, she has this utter fear of being buried alive, and she won't go through a tunnel. She won't go anywhere that she might be in darkness. She's utterly scared. And she goes on and on and talks for maybe two minutes. And he says, okay, pay attention. Here's what I have to say to you. Two words. You ready? She gets out a pencil as if she can't remember two words. Are you ready? Stop it! (laughs) What? What do you mean, stop it? Stop it! Stop behaving like that! No, but you don't understand. My mom treated me this way. No, 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 we don't go there. Stop it! Three minutes. And then he's done. So they've got two more minutes. And she brings up all these other things. Stop it. Stop it. And that's how we often deal with our behavioral problems, with the things that are blocks in our lives, the things that are frustrating. We tell ourselves, just stop it. Stop behaving that way. And that's how we, in the Christian church, often deal with sin as well. Stop it. And that's the end. That's the solution. But it's not, and that's not what Jesus says. Because he could have said, look, here's your problem. Stop sleeping around. (laughs) You have no friends because everyone thinks you're a harlot. Stop sleeping around and they'll accept you again. You're not happy because you're sleeping around. Stop it. You're breaking the rules. You want God to be happy? Well, stop sleeping around. That's not what Jesus does. 
He doesn't say, stop it. But instead, he uses a pattern in her life that gets to the real root problem, that gets to the root of her unhappiness. And how does she respond? (laughs) Well, while we're on the subject of my five husbands and my present lover, tell me what your opinion is on where people should worship. (laughs) It's not really what Jesus is getting after, is it? A little bit of a theological diversion. Now that you've pinned me in a corner, let me ask you a question, Jesus. How are you going to answer this? But in fact, it plays right into Jesus' hands. Because the issue of thirst is really an issue of what? Of worship. Worship has to do with one's most fundamental commitments, one's devotions, one's most fundamental foundational allegiances. It has to do with what you've placed your hopes in. It has to do with your trust, your confidence, where is happiness to be found? Those are, those are questions of worship. What have you wholly given yourself over to? That's an issue of worship, and that's what Jesus is getting to. And when she tries to divert his attention, he goes right to the real source, right to the heart of the matter. Woman, in verse 21, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is saying, friend, woman, the hour for those debates is over. Worship is not about where you worship It's not about the racial group that you occupy. It's not about where you live. It's not about how you bow. It's not by counting how many numbers, how many prayers you've said. Worship is not about that. It's about what is at the center of your life. It is about, am I the center of your life, or have you replaced me, displaced me with something else? (laughs) And I love her response. She basically says, well, I'm not so sure about that. Messiah will come, and he will answer these questions. You see, again, dubious and skeptical. That can't really be what the whole point of the Scriptures is, the center of your heart. Jesus, talk about behavior. Talk about solutions. Help me get out of this mess. When the Messiah comes, he'll sort it all out. And you can almost see her head turning to go, to walk out of this conversation, because she's trying to put an end to it. It's apparently become... A little bit uncomfortable, but Jesus catches her one last time with these words. Literally, I am the one who is speaking to you. I am He, that Messiah that you're hoping that's going to come and answer these questions. That's me. I am. It's a loaded Hebrew term because that's how God revealed Himself. And He said, Woman, I am He. I am what you seek. In all of those men that you have been sleeping around trying to find security and hope and happiness and satisfaction, I am what you're really seeking. Come to me. The encounter, the image, and now the cleansing. What we're talking about in this series is is encounters that change everything in the people's lives that encounter Jesus. And we're going to look now just briefly at how For this woman, this changes everything. Four things quickly. 
First of all, she had a new freedom to face her failures. Verse 29. Before, she's hiding from everyone. That's why she was at the well at noon to begin with. But now she openly says, Come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. We see the beginnings of a repentant heart. Because Jesus wasn't content just to deal with her behavior. That would be truth without grace. And it would cause her to want to hide deeper and hide farther and never come around again. But he also doesn't just give her grace and mercy without truth, without calling out her behavior, because that would cause her to deny that anything was wrong with her to begin with. No, he gives her grace and truth. He gives her spirit and truth. Yes, you need to change, but you need to see why you're searching out those things to begin with, or you'll just change the sin. You'll just change the pattern. Maybe you don't sleep around anymore. Maybe you then become angry. Maybe you then turn to alcoholism or drug abuse. If you don't deal with the root issue, then this encounter is worth nothing. You just change the channel. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Secondly, that she engages the very people that she formerly avoided. Can you imagine her going into the village telling everyone about a new man that she's encountered? A man? I've seen a man. He's going to answer everything. But she's not consumed anymore with shame. She's willing to put herself out there. She's willing to say, look, let me show you what I have found. Her concern for others now outruns her shame. She wants her fellow Samaritans to see and understand and drink from the well that she's drinking from. So she says, come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. She engages the, the very people that she formerly avoided. And friends, we need to see that pattern in our lives. If there are people that you've avoided before you became a Christian, or if you've been a Christian for 40 years and you avoided someone yesterday, go to them. Let your concern for them, because you see what Jesus has done in your life, let that begin to uproot that hatred, that anger, that bitterness, that lack of forgiveness that you have for that person. Engage them. Three, that she confesses Jesus as Christ and as the Savior. Verse 42, that Messiah is here, and he is the Savior of the world. With growing confidence because of what God has done for her, she wants other people to realize the very same thing. So she becomes an instrument. Not simply one who's been changed, but she wants to be the root, the path, the instrument that, through which other people change. And then fourthly, if she left her water jar behind. And if you were going to film this, if you were going to film this episode, you would... Do, have the conversation, you'd feel, figure out how in backstory or something to explain what the image of water meant, what living water was in the Old Testament. And then if I was the director, I would, I would fade out with that image of the jar at the well. She left her jar. Her life had been changed that she forgets the very reason that she went to the well to begin with. She goes to the well to draw water in the heat of the day trying to avoid everyone it's very intentional. And then she leaves to go tell everyone else what's happened, and she forgets her jar. What a picture. It represents her forsaking her old water sources. I've left that behind. 
Now, what are you looking for in order to get your thirst quenched? Wherever you're coming from spiritually, I dare say that you are thirsty. And I dare say that if I ask you the right questions, you would own up to that. And I dare say that if you thought hard about it, or if maybe you came and met with me, that we could figure out that it's this and that and three or whatever, that here are the things that you have put your hope in, that you are looking at pleasure, alcohol, success, sex. There's something that we could, do, we could point to and say, this is why you're unhappy, because you have placed the hopes of heaven. <laughs> you have placed the hopes of immortality on that thing. And it's going to lead you to be more thirsty than you ever were before. David Foster Wallace, who wrote Infinite Jest in the 90s and unfortunately committed suicide later, says this. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is, that there is, is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are our default settings. Here's a brilliant writer, not even a Christian as far as I know, who says that we all are worshiping beings. And we go about our world trying to find adequate sources, adequate people, things to worship. And they all leave us unhappy. We've learned, we've been socialized to quench our thirst on our own. Our default setting is that I must do this. I must get this. I must find this. And then I will be happy. I must place my hope in something. And so we've been drifting in and out of relationships, in and out of relationship with things, with ideas, with concepts, and we find their promise ever distant, ever more out of reach. The harder we try, it seems like that thing just recedes a bit farther. And so we live anxious lives. We live angry lives. We live lives that are just all over the place because we can't figure out what to do with ourselves. What living water does is not simply cleanse you of your behavioral problems. It doesn't simply make you presentable, although it does do that. What living water says, what Jesus says, is that when I wash you with living water, you are clean. You can come into worship. You can come into the presence of God because you are clean. That's what living water does. It says nothing you could do could make you presentable, but I will wash you and make you clean. But it doesn't only do that, because what living water does is it changes your default setting. It changes your method of worship, and you begin to self-critique. You begin to see all of those things that you have placed your hope in as fruitless and as salt water, and you begin to say, what if, what if I replace that thing with Jesus? Would he leave me? It doesn't just make you clean, it makes you new. It changes your default setting so that you begin to change. You have the freedom to change. And it doesn't just say, well, keep living the way that you always lived. This woman left her water jar and went to proclaim truth 
went to proclaim the beauty of Jesus. She changed. And living water changes your default setting so that you can begin to change, so that you can begin to worship in spirit and in truth. Notice the confession that we read this morning, and I will end with this. We have sought fulfillment on our own terms only to remain unsatisfied. While our appetites have grown large and unmanageable, our reflection of you has grown small and unrecognizable. Forgive us from turning, for turning from you the spring of living water to the staleness of selfish indulgence. As we come to your word and your table, let us be filled. Friends, we end worshiping and praising God in the last chapter before the chapter we read in John 3, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do not stand as our condemning judge, that there is judgment of sin, yes, but that you have chosen yourself to pay the penalty. And so there is no condemnation for us any longer if we are in you. Father, let us be set free because of that. Let us not turn once again to selfish indulgence, to seeking our own way and our own agenda, but Father, let us seek you. Let us begin to deal with our past hurts. Let us begin to deal with the, the behaviors that are, that are killing us, that are destroying us. And Father, let us change by the power of your Holy Spirit because living water is now flowing through us. Lord Jesus, would you announce yourself in a new way to us this morning? And Lord, all of us are seeking. Some of us are seeking from the inside. We've been Christians for many years. Some of us are seeking from the outside. Would you meet us where we are? And would you let your living water cleanse us and set us free? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.